0: Hello, good evening, Um, on behalf of Penn, I bid you welcome to the 13th in a very successful series of New Writer Evenings, previous evenings. Have resulted in publication for a number of new writers and we believe that uh, you'll want to hear a great deal more from some of the new writers, from all of the new writers, that you'll hear here tonight. Um, For very generous hospitality and pleasant rooms in which to read and listen, uh, we are grateful to Anne Quinlan and the staff here at Endicott Books. They've asked me to announce, to remind you not to smoke, and also to announce there'll be a reception Toward the cash register following the reading, <laughs> and also that the cash register will be open for 20 minutes during the uh, beginning of the reception if you'd like to buy a book or two. And I have a romantic notion that there are in the audience a few who have not been to very many readings, and perhaps a few who are relatively new to New York, a few who are students or who are working in one way or another to support literary hopes and dreams. I want to say to my imagined romantic few, especially, that by the pulse of dreams, by the heartbeat they create within you, um, and perhaps by whatever it means to you to be here tonight, you may know how your dreams can come true. This is a good place to try your dreams. Five years ago, Margaret Atwood read poems here to an audience noticeably from Soho and Tribeca, an audience of genteelly punkish, sharp-edged night people, this in the days before her fiction was published in mass market and advertised on subways and in buses. Three years ago, Jay McInerney read here, uh, well before he rode the high crest of Bright Lights, Big City. At the same time, Jim Crumley read and then returned west, no more or less visible than he'd ever been, as good a writer as ever. And one snowy wonder day, Robert Stone, who grew up in this neighborhood a long time before there ever was an Endicott Books, or a clientele here to support it. Uh, He brought his teenage son in from Connecticut to see these streets, and then came in to browse and to see what was on the shelves, what's new, what's enduring. Those here who have gained some recognition know its practical uses, uh, its political uses, and I think also learn that its best, strongest use, its only true life finally, is to lend it freely to someone else who will in turn choose wisely and share the spotlight at every good opportunity. The great encouragement in an evening like this one is an overwhelming and buoyant sense of community, the firm belief that the success of any good individual is the success of us all. Our introducers and readers tonight will appear in the order listed on your invitation, with one exception, the last shall be first, Uh, so we're going to begin with Pamela and Betty tonight. Thank you.
1: Honored as I felt when Pamela Pierce called to invite me to introduce a young writer on this occasion, I nearly declined. Frankly, my heart sank at the prospect of choosing just one from a number of gifted writers whose as yet unpublished work I admire. I agreed to think it over. I did. And it was as difficult as I had supposed. Why this one and not that? I finally called Pamela Pierce with Elizabeth Lerner's name, and I'll tell you why. Though she is not the only one among my former writing students at Columbia whom I feel I could present here with pride and confidence, she is the one I can introduce with most sincere astonishment. I mean, I have seen her more than a few times into my own pleased astonishment transform a confusing mishmash of good lines and hopeless garble into a splendidly coherent and moving piece of work. She does not just work with the good lines and trash the garble, which is the easy way. She goes on to confront and incorporate the hopeless parts with courage. She comes up with a range of tones, exasperated, funny, desperate, lyrical, and so on, and of course, as she is in training to climb Parnassus. But what strikes me most about Betsy is this, her gift for the unexpected transformation, something she does behind the scenes, the real thing you can't put your finger on. This is the feeling. Somebody comes on stage with a limping, two-headed rabbit, and you think the best its trainer might do is maybe to make it jump over a stick or to persuade it to exit with panache by allowing itself to be drop-kicked into the wings. Instead, a silk top hat rises out of the rabbit's leftmost ear, and out of that hat comes a sailboat, a Christmas turkey, and Miss America, all with two heads, and appropriately. So, I have learned from watching this particular learner for one great thing, not to expect just the best that might be gotten, given evidence of pain under pressure, but to wait for what cannot be imagined or expected, from what seems at hand, to be ready to get something better. That's what we're here for. Um, Betsy Lerner is a graduate of New York University, where she won the Thomas Wolfe Memorial Poetry Prize in 1980. She's currently completing her MFA at Columbia University, She's the recipient of the Simon and Schuster Fellowship and co-editor of Columbia, a magazine of poetry and prose. Her work has appeared in the Webster Review, and a poem will appear in a forthcoming anthology edited by Joseph McElroy. I'm pleased to present her. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Okay, is that good? Okay, it's fine. Thank you. you. Um, I have to thank Pamela and also my fellow students at Columbia um, who've helped me a lot with these. Uh, The first poem I'd like to read is called This Little Piggy, and it's about um, an obese man I was in a class with who got teased, and uh, he never came back. And um, I've always felt very sad for him. This is called This Little Piggy. He was teased, singled out, as I imagine he has never been before, in a room full of people and by the teacher. I imagine he hoped this time would be different, the same way he's convinced of Mondays, where every Monday becomes Fat Tuesday. If I could, I would have taken his fat face into my hands and kissed his greasy skin. I would have let him touch me the way I let tall men touch me, tall and muscular men, or short men small and selfish men. I would let him believe that nothing is more beautiful than his massive white buttocks and thick, hairless thighs. I would serve on silver every night, different sauces. I would say, you are my sweet piggy, my sweet, sweet piggy. I would say, eat, sweet piggy, taste my gravy. But I know myself, the ways I compensate for being fat, doing things in exchange for silence. I will only look at the seat where he was, watch the small man who called him that, scared him away. He never came back. But I will be grateful he didn't pick me. I will let the fat man carry me. Um, this next poem is called Venus Envy, and it's in the, uh, it's in the voice of Venus, and she's speaking to her a very expensive Madison Avenue psychiatrist, and she's very haughty, as I imagine her. To say that I was wounded, well, I really have to laugh. It's just I've lost all interest in so much of my past. Amathos, Nidos, Paphos, my metal-rich resorts, hunting, fishing, diving, all my favorite sports. I used to love the shade where I'd cultivate my charms. Now I ramble as Diana, an animal myself, although I mean no harm. I stay clear, of course, of wolves and slaughters of the herd. I warn Adonis, too, though I'm afraid he does not hear. Last weekend, when we picnicked, for example, in the grove, his touch, I blush to say, was gentle as a dove. But after we did it, he so quickly turned away, in that desperate moment after desperation gives way i saw something in him as he composed himself and hated him for taking my love as myth um, this next poem is a sestina which is that obsessive form of repeating words and it's about calorie counting that obsessive activity And all the facts come off the back of a Vogue magazine, (laughs) in case anyone wants to check me. (laughs) Calories and other counts. Most women gain weight in their thighs first, followed by hips, abdomen, and upper body, especially the backs of arms. When they lose weight, it frequently comes off in reverse order, meaning the thighs are last to go. A pound of pure fat contains 3,500 calories. Women count, keep track, multiply. Women and children are saved first, but are first to find fault with themselves, pound their bellies, hate their bodies. It comes with the territory, always ordering salad and consommes, losing their pleasure in an effort to lose. Ideally, 20 to 22 percent fatty tissue, women are built to last, come made to order. My mother said, put your man first, guide his helpless body into the fold. Pound for pound, sex burns 3,500 per. In other words, what have you got to lose? (laughs) There is no mind-body problem for women. The mind comes first, body last. It's always in that order. Women like their men to order, bear down, press their pounding hearts back into bone. Men last, come first, allow themselves to lose. Their own fear, leaving their own lonely bodies, longing for the fuller, firmer, more perfect body. If only the mind could order the body, women would hold their weight and pound their doubt, finally lose this four-footed fear coming first. This is for a woman who lost 62 pounds, half her weight, ordered salad on her deathbed for her first perfect body. i like, um, this next poem is uh, called Neverland, and I won't tell you anything about it. But it's two words, Neverland. Everyone asks if I think I'll go back, and I say if I do, it'll be for the jello. Or Sylvia, the Swedish nurse who understood the importance of floss. Vaxed or unvaxed, she used to ask. <laughs> and this lightens things considerably. I wonder what people wonder when they ask this, or if they want me back flashing titty at the mail nurses with one arm dramatically draped in sheets twisted around my wrists so they can stay inside visiting lines think about their own windows wanting to fly sometimes I admit I miss the rules like when my mother dressed me fed me or did she drink and milk the mailman ride the mop across the kitchen sometimes I miss being cared for But usually I brag about my card game, how quick I got in, my perfect bidding. It's like everything else in every place I've ever been. Once you're in, you're in, except you can't get out until you can. Or Dr. Hook kills Peter Pan, and his ghost whispers, Wendy, I can. And she lifts her hospital gown for him, and he holds her, and she lets him, and they fly. And um, <clears throat> I'll just read one more. This is an elegy for um, a sister of mine that died when she was two, and it's called Taking Flight. Everything begins with the plate glass gliding into our third grade room. The gray birds who, mistaking windows for air, died mid-flight. We made signs for them, Watch out, Birds! And pasted the construction paper to glass We knew we could save them Keep them from this death To find another Less tragic, less holy Like angels I thought I was an angel In the corner of the crib Did I kill her when I wished her The child's wish away Then the night when they took her For just one night's day The death of a baby bird is small Small as an infant's cough In the night, one night, too late I tried to take myself when I went to the river's crestfallen waves collapsed into ice cakes. When I walked by the bridge, the gray mouth it made, looking for bird signs, droppings of any kind, some gentle, splattered reminder that the ledge is not air and my coat cannot carry me like a blanket or basket to shore. They must have listened with stethoscopes as if they could hear what she could not say, as my doctor does when I am under... Mining myself, wanting to cut through skin thick as whale or woman. How do you know I'm not dangerous? I'm not dangerous. She just stopped breathing. Listen, I'm scared to hold my sister's new baby as I'm scared to hold myself in these March winds, its hot and cold games in the shortened night. I'm scared to let go of the flight that brought me this far to shore. I've come to need the beating wings of birds who taking their usual spot, like nervous believers on the rooftop, have come to mean something. Thank you.
3: Eugene uh, Ritchie's biography is on here. I'll just add th- that he's uh, married to the poet Roseanne Wasserman and that he has particular interest in translating uh, Latin American poetry and in reading Latin American poetry. Among the poets he has translated are the Colombian poet and fiction writer Jaime Manrique, uh, the Peruvian writer Isaac Goldenberg, and the Venezuelan. Writer Matilde Uh Well, it seems as though everything that's anything is postmodern eclectic now. Uh, I've never quite known what postmodernism in literature means. At any rate, no one has ever told me. In architecture, it's easy to identify because it means dormers and pastel pillars. In music and painting, it often gets called the uh, new romanticism, but on the other hand, as some music critic pointed out, the rom- romantic composers were in the avant-garde of their day, whereas the uh, uh, music called that these days seems to be tend towards easy listening. Uh, at any rate, it's a uh, return to comforting or academic uh values, no more dissonance, what a relief type of thing. Uh, in the case of Eugene Ritchie's poetry, I would tend to qualify it as, as neo-romantic also in the sense that, uh, <coughs> of, uh, uh, much of the music today of people like Del Tredici or, uh, Jacob Druckmann. But, uh, it it seems to uh avoid the uh the the postmodernist stance in its in its purity, a kind of purity that seems almost pre romantic. I'm thinking of uh Helderlin, uh, Novalis, uh, and uh, Gerard de Nerval rather than Picture Hugo, although the poets who seem to mean most to uh Eugene, Richie R., Wallace, Stevens, and who was the other one? (laughs) (laughs) Rilke. Yes, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, But uh, this uh, purity which does exist in his work is is undercut or perhaps more precisely (laughs) coexists with a highly contemporary, impure urban context. There is above all a note of what, at least what comes through most of me is a note of ecstasy in his work but whose source or nature is difficult to pin down it seems to be both earthily sensual and in some way transcendental uh, and it uh, seems to me as original a note in poetry as any that are being struck today so without further ado I'll give you the poet Eugene Ritchie
4: Seascape in Moonlight Arriving on the shores of this new land Bridging the light between these islands You gaze at the late afternoon windows Of longing, of mist in the grey calm Night of shadows, wind-blown sea spray Cresting waves in the silver light of the moon The moments of your song are etched in black lace. Land of a forgotten heritage, where arms hold the torsos of heated bodies, wings of a moonlit bird hovering over the sea, over fires on distant beaches, sweat of mouths that breathe each other's breath and touch each other's tongues. Faces of this rising sun that spills light upon these shores warming us lighting our way through this darkness in this night nocturne nameless you enter this landscape of flaming syllables beneath the night sky closing your eyes on that tame world where desire is an ever-changing sea. Your only care is to open your arms and move your lips without naming a name, to waste away the hours to taste and touch and hear and smell and see. The pain that burns in your loving thighs is just another sign of worldly time beyond this nocturnal dream. Neither ocean waves nor tropical rains could quench the love that flames up and fills this darkness with your all-too-human cries. Aurorian Messenger A cool breeze lifts the green leaves, and dark clouds blanket the gray sky. As the shadow of a wing descending crosses the bed before my eyes, Another morning rain has begun to fall, bathing the roofs and iron stairs, filling the eaves with streaming debris, tuning the strings of the coric air. The touch of your auroral hand opens my waking ears to the angelic voices of water and trees and these letters that rise to my lips out of sleep and dream are signs of your passage through this land. In the theater of memory, on that somber morning when the curtain fell and the stage door opened onto a pale blue sky of emerald leaves and golden sunlight, you felt the earth shift on its axis like the changing of the guard or the end of one age and the beginning of another. But this wave does not begin or end. It springs up on the sea's horizon and moves toward you until it breaks, spreading its fan of foam on the beach, and you are drawn deeper into the foliage toward the ones you are left with, the survivors at the height of summer and a promise of rain. I've written several poems about light, particularly the light on the water, which I've seen in various places from the tops of buildings on the East River and also from windows uh, on the Hudson River. And this is one of those poems. The light of distant nearness... Deep down there in the darkness, in the whirlpool, in the endless absence, in the day's oblivion, memory is a secret quiet voice of water and silence. There the body begins its eternal descent into darkest space, sinking ever downward toward the light below. This light of the other side comes from a place where voice is no longer absence but now only endless otherness. Where words begin and end without need to ascend or seek the world's other text, here beneath that thicket of night appears the light of distant nearness, a voice and a day of dream and desire. This poem is called Standing on Ceremony and it uses the uh, technique of restating the idea in each line, which is a memory device that was used by the, the uh, writers of the Finnish uh, folk legends, which have been collected in a book called the Kalevala. It's called Standing on Ceremony. Standing on Ceremony. A hand yanks the string. The moon draws the tide over a steel blue sheet, the aluminum lid of a metallic bed, a table set for the afternoon banquet, half illuminated, struck by the dim glow in the blind alley in the theater of Malachite. The tale unfolds, the familiar story is told, of how this on steed, this spirited mount opened its eyes and savored the light in the cloistered refuge in the dry oasis, near tepid pools beside mirrors of brackish water, in the azure distance on the blue horizon, the wind stirs, the air mouths languid chords, golden notes of a lost instrument, a single reed. A shadow falls, a silhouette stretches over the black letters, ebony runes on a bone-white parchment, a wind-blown leaf that has come to rest, hung in the saddle between sun-parched dunes in the desert sand. There is a rip in the fabric, seams burst, and the dark chaos, the ancient desire, breaks loose again, floods the dry land, bringing leaf and branch, scattering refuse and debris in its wake behind receding waves. This poem is also a Hudson River landscape and it's called A Sail Ascending. Sometimes it seems there is a plan trying to work itself out through you You have some say in it, but it continues to unwind like a movie reel in an old Nickelodeon. As often as you've tried you cannot make sense out of it, though it begins to take shape when you look at the world around you. It isn't fate or destiny or good or bad fortune, but something in the design of things as they are, a form emerging from the stone. The narrow dirt road hewn out of the steep bluff Above this winding channel A silver bridge arcing over the waves A billowing sail in a northerly breeze A gust of wind from inside you The voice in your ear a blue haze buffeting the green horizon White surf spilling onto the shore And splashing on the rocks Water flowing past the black piers That jut out into the swift current and those monoliths of another time toward the mouth of this river and a relentless but passive sea. This poem is called Nothing New Under the Sun and it always reminds me of the Kodak ad which has uh, various uh, landscapes uh, in it, and, and it usually starts off by saying something like, if you were in the uh, mountains in Latin America, in Ecuador, in the Valley of the Volcanoes, you, uh, you wouldn't want to miss the site and, and not have your camera. And if you were in the Matterhorn and you, and you saw the moon over it, you certainly would want to catch that. And if you were in the Galapagos on the san, uh, sandy, s- sunny beach, you certainly would want to have your camera to take a picture. So it uses that technique. <laughs> Nothing new under the sun. If you were surrounded by water at the peak of sunset on a barren South Sea island, or cloistered in a grotto behind a dense thicket of rose bushes, if you were circled by raging flames in the dungeon of an abandoned castle, or trapped in the lair of a wild animal in a cave below snow-capped mountains, if you were caught in a web of branches and trees left by flash floods in the deep ravine of some narrow river valley, or lost in the middle of a forest at nightfall, I would come to you with outstretched arms to hold your radiant face in my warm hands and mouth the sweat from your brow. But the way to you leads over this dark and muddy ground through the blue mist of evening that lingers above a field of purple loosestrife into a valley of lights glittering in the dead of night. And the last poem called Intricate Evasions. You never sought out the Olympian heights, knowing that they were hidden from your earthly gaze, and that the palace of excess led to the dungeon of wisdom, though the gates were always open to you, if only you had availed yourself of the diplomat's abuse and learned to park on a lamppost. Instead, you knelt on the damp ground, at the foot of a somewhat smaller mountain, below a sacred springs, and waited for the muses to pass by with Apollo in the summer, like momentary reflections on water, or watched in the winter for Dionysus and his new wave entourage, whose hairstyles had been designed by the latest Enfant Terrible to have appeared on the murky scene There in that longed-for land, you hoped, with one last valiant attempt, to get the story straight, before returning to this rugged valley, to lie in a leafy bower, in the shade of the laurel, on the banks of a swiftly flowing river, under the limbs whose every sinew, in the arms whose every muscle was stretched, to the annunciation of your return.
5: seems to me that what interests us most in the poets we care about is the play of passion with intelligence In Susan Pliner's case, the passion I think will speak to all of you for itself These are poems born out of strong feeling and often with considerable narrative drive At the same time as you wait, as it were, for the shoes to drop. I hope you will also listen for the way her syntax unfolds itself and listen for the varying weights and lengths of the sentence units that give us the subtlety and substantiality of mature experience. That's where the intelligence comes in. Hers are poems not easily come by, Each one is quite complete in its own sensuous and psychological density. And they have a kind of elegance in the sense in which scientists use the word, a cleanness of apprehended form. I really want to give Susan all the time here and not introduce her at length, so I hope you'll read about her in the programs. But I'll just say... That she only started writing a few years ago. That is, she came to writing as a mature woman. And whatever we mean by that, these are certainly a woman's poems. Susan Planner. Jimmy I'm going to stand.
6: The first poem I'm going to read is a Sestina. Something I couldn't tell you about happened at least a decade ago. It was October, (coughs) a brilliant day of sunshine and quick changes. Clouds raced across the sky, the sun went blank, then reappeared. Such light as one sees when leaves have quickly left the trees and all is bare. I could tell you of the garden, just how barren it lay, except for the cherry tomatoes, which happened to cling to the dry vines, whose crinkled leaves smelled of declining life that cool October day when a child, trailing a scrap of blanket, went outside to eat tomatoes. The changes made that day are with us still They change us even now. I couldn't tell how bare that day has laid me. Such a blankness should come to all who think they know what happens next and next, and that after October comes November. Unplanned events can leave us detached, cut off, untreated like leaves blown here and there. I won't tell of changes. I'll only say what happened that October when stopping work a cold I couldn't bear came over me running out I happened to see my face reflected it was blank, pale, afraid soon to gain new blankness I ran to the pond dyed dark with leaves dyed red with the shirt of him who happened to be floating there If only I could change the day, the hour, the harvest I would bear, dripping wet and cold from the water that old October. I was a mother for three years and four days in October. On the fifth day, I rested blankly from mothering. I cannot bear to tell you any more. New leaves have greened and grown, new changes, children, since then have happened. Since that October, countless other leaves have blanketed the pond, changed it from red and brown. I've barely noticed it happen. Uh, This poem is called Eclipse of the Moon, and it's about watching... Um, the lunar eclipse a couple of summers ago with my daughter, Sarah. A pool of light in such a dark green swatch. We sit in it, my daughter and I, watching the moon together. Before, there was thrashing in the brush, panting, hooves clattered. Now, matching silences, (coughs) we gather the quilt closer, drag the chair until we are caught in white again, our watching faces marbled with a shadowy feather. Leaves. The moon moves on. In the darkness, I see my mother's face as I watch the stars falling once with her. We were silent then also. We said nothing. Now we move into light. This watching is slow and cool. Sarah leaves, another dark shape moving. The moon is dimmer, almost gone, not there at all. I stay, watching the emptying sky, filling with quiet, her, not her. I'm going to read two poems next. The first one <coughs> is about um, my mother, and when she was dying, she she wanted to come and live with me, which she did not do, but was I wrote this at the time. I thought she was coming to live with me. And it's called A Distant Tree. She wants our children, <coughs> mine and my brother's, an ignorant garland of girls held to her nose to cover the chill of her death. It is the end of her life almost. She returns to me from pungent southern hospitals, exiled survivor of her body, inconsiderate host. She frightens me for all the old reasons, and these new, insistent, bony ideas of hers, children pulled to her again, greenest grass at the edge of the grave. She has been hard, a stone, enduring the heat of no season, withdrawn and alone. No one to hear her difficult footsteps, the fawn undialed the night she tried to die. Thin guest at countless tinfoil meals, ghost caretaker of the dusty ivory birds, Once I held her hand as she lay lost in the noise of an overdose, the closest we have come to comfort between here and there, a mirage in the shimmering tropical air. Together we will watch the rocks across the river, where each distant tree has a place to stand and drop its leaves. From here they look like broccoli, yellowish, soft, the hawk. Talons bent to its heart Descends Sees sharp sticks The snarl of a nest You were told Breathe this Or you don't have to Then the sheet Over your head Where do you sit while they strip in green light the wet paper from the bed, the tape from your wrist? Sheets, your gown, fill the trash. The mop woman clucks. The hot sun begins to come up. Easter week dawns on the cracked white streets. I clasped your icy foot, circled the bed, pressed my stomach to the cool steel rails, smoothed your skin as I once stroked your empty mink among the shivering hangers. It is cocktail time. Your friends raise their glasses to catch the setting sun. They regret your absence. Your youngest son, sweating in his suit, calls you best friend, one who never judged. Later he admits the lie the fan turned slowly overhead, mixing up our histories. You must be burning up, your long nails scorch. It is your dust I am free to touch. The woman who only dared caress her sleeping child, who felt the texture of her hair, cupped her palm around the pointed chin, breath held back, afraid that she would interrupt. You might drift forever, forever in your silk robe, champagne glass in hand, so pay attention. I am not your doctor, his red face squalling in your ear for whom you'd turn and move and smile. I saw you, who outlasted all your lovely flesh, sit, wobbling in the chair while they changed the bed. You, Fainting on half a leg, sat ashen, silent, gown rucked up around your neck, your lashless lids and once blue eyes, looking at me impersonally. (coughs) The next poem is from a photograph that was taken in Central Park in the late 1940s. Mother and I are coming straight for the camera, an action picture in black and white. I've grabbed her large purse and I'm running ahead. The folds of the leather bend and wobble across my arm. About to burst, the purse clutched to my chest, I'm one with the terrible moment. Of mother chasing me for fun. The grass of the sheep meadow pounds under our feet. It is hot. We are in cotton dresses. Mother's is big, it flaps. Mine is hiked up to the tops of my thighs. She had ironed all that morning, whitewashed my shoes, preparing for this shot of somebody not 100% into the fun of the chase. Her eyes behind dark glasses slide to the camera. Will this do? Is this the kind of picture you want? Her arm is out to grab me behind my back. A very large muscle stretches the cloth of her sleeves. My arms are baby fat, creased, unjointed, like the bland animal crackers eaten from their zoo of a box. My legs dig, pronk the white slippers deep in the dirt with the breakneck speed of somebody about to be caught. The eye behind the camera closes, satisfied. He rolls up the film and takes us out to eat, my cool, frightened mother and her adorable me, gray, faded figures racing toward his lazy eye, his open mouth. He marries the mother with the muscular arms, who chased the child in the too-short dress, who captured the man with one knee on the grass, who took the picture of both of us running away. <clears throat> um, the last poem is uh, called Sunset, February. And I live in Riverdale, over the Hudson River, over, above the Hudson River, over the train tracks. And this is how it is at my house in February. A somewhat milder evening than what the radio says. River ice slides by, sliced thin, outside the door. Where sleet had rattled the weeds last night, along the rusting tracks, small lamps are lit in cans. They are fishing the Hudson again in the thaw, pulling in dark, coiling shapes from the cracked debris. Not so much to say. The typewriter wishes to cut its teeth. It is ready to press the soft paper with words of emptiness until it darkens with lost, gone, cold rain, gone beyond, slid down and drained away, frozen, broken lines of ice drifting downstream. No new currents yet, no voice or tone in which to say the warmth your body makes, even at a distance. They built a shelter right under where I live. In the lit door I saw shadows moving, someone cooking over a fire, smoke rising from out the rattling plastic roof, sporting life along the river, the children bundled and picking around the icy rocks. The hut fell in, the first strong blow, a blue November evening, not long ago fire warms the ice on the window, the melt drips near where we sit, your hair lit as it is by the fire, a Flemish goldsmith's dream of burnished auburn wire. We are eating the crackers that shatter under cheese, while the wine climbs the heated air, windows rattle with the push of flaming clouds from the west. Little to be said, we are at our ease. Thank you.
7: Thank you all for coming. I think uh, the chief thing for our purposes to know about Donald Pizzarello is that he's a doctor. Uh, He's a uh, radiology professor at NYU Medical Center. He uh, has written four textbooks. I don't necessarily think that's the uh, the best way to become a fiction writer but I do think there is an advantage to being a doctor Uh, because any doctor worth his salt uh, is almost forced to learn to observe and it's the kind of thing that uh, Flaubert and De Maupassant uh, did when they walked down the street. Uh, de Maup- uh, Flaubert would say to De Maupassant, "What color were that, was, uh, was that lady's hair that just went by?" And he would. Uh, de Maupassant would say, uh, "Yellow." And her eyes. Uh, her eyes. Well, uh, doctors uh, learn that skill. Um, And I think it's uh, something we might call the diagnostic eye. And what I mean, an example of that is this. But Diomedes in his hand caught up a stone, a huge thing which no two men could carry, such as men are now, but by himself he lightly hefted it. He threw and caught Aeneas in the hip, in the place where the hip bone turns inside the thigh, the place men call the cup socket. It smashed the cup socket and broke the tendons both sides of it, and the rugged stone tore the skin backward so that the fighter, dropping to one knee, stayed leaning on the ground with his heavy hand and a covering of black night came over both eyes. Um, I can't help but think that the predecessors of Homer, uh, that is from the Iliad, book five, and it's Lattie Moore's translation, I can't think that in the thousand years that preceded Homer and made this great epic. Uh, There weren't some surgeons or doctors writing, uh, singing. Um, Because that book five alone has 30 such examples. Well, let's jump from 750 B.C. to 1892. Toward evening, Dr. Ragan died from an apoplectic stroke. At first, he felt a numbing chill and nausea. Something horrible seemed to be spreading all over his body, even over his fingers, extending from his stomach to his head and flooding his eyes and ears. Everything turned green before his eyes. Dr. Ragan realized that his end had come, and he remembered that Grumov, the postmaster, and millions of others believed in immortality. What if it did exist? But he did not want immortality, and he thought of it only for a moment. A herd of deer, extraordinarily beautiful and graceful, which he had been reading about the previous day, raced past him. Then... A peasant woman stretched out a hand to him with a registered letter. The postmaster said something. Then everything vanished and Dr. Ragin lost consciousness forever. Uh, that's from Ward 6 by Chekhov. Uh, I, I don't want to make any judgments. <laughs> Uh, those views of uh, death are very different in in uh, Homer. Uh, of course, it was uh, that's how you attain glory uh, by killing your opponent on the battlefield. That's uh, how, uh, you either uh, that's how you became a hero. You uh, killed someone, or you became the glory for someone else who killed you. And that really is the meaning of being in the Iliad. Uh, For Chekhov, it was very different. And uh, Chekhov was pained by human suffering, and uh, uh, he brought something else to being a doctor. He was a doctor and a writer. And he brought, in addition to the diagnostic eye, he brought what we might call the sympathetic heart, among other things. Um, I think today doctors uh, 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 really are almost trained not to show the sympathetic heart or until recently. Now they, I think, have revised the view. Maybe you should uh, show your feelings. Uh, I think Donald Pizzarello has both these qualities. The... Diagnostic Eye and the Sympathetic Heart. Uh, In the novel from which he's going to read now, the extremely appealing, awkward, overweight heroine, Bernadine, is an unwitting miracle worker. And she works her miracles in the service of a deity even more handicapped and unwitting than she is. Through this pair and their miracles, Donald Pizzarello has hit upon a wonderful means by which to examine with his diagnostic eye the surfeit of human suffering, a surfeit to which he invariably responds like Chekhov with a sympathetic heart. Donald Pizzarello.
8: Yeah, I think I'll sit down. No? Okay. If you this a to okay. You a Fine, sure. Sandy, thank you very, very much. Uh, I'll give first a brief synopsis and then go into the excerpt that I plan to read from that novel. A young woman, Bernadine Rice, on her way home from work one night, notices a tent-like canvas structure. It's on a low wall next to a busy street in a medium-sized American city called Emmis. Her curiosity aroused, she attempts to lift the flap. She is stopped by a hiss and a scented spray. At first frightened, but later keenly curious, she enters the structure and discovers a young man covered with a silk sheet. He will not speak, but in response to her questions, squirts perfumes at her. She begins to visit him nightly, to bathe him, to remove his body wastes and refuse, but even though they make love, is never allowed to see his face. In time, she comes to believe that he has supernatural powers. She dubs him New Man, that's P-N-E-U, New Man with a P, because his use of sense recalls the Greek idea pneuma, an airborne spirit. His name, in fact, is Freddie Marek. Acting on an impulse... Bernadine, who works in a natural food medicine store, applies a salve made from new man's refuse to a skin ulcer on a child suffering from leukemia. Both the ulcer and the leukemia disappear, an event some regard as miraculous, others coincidental. One morning, carrying a box containing, among other things, a bottle of Freddy's used bath water, Bernadine stands at a railroad crossing, waiting for a train to pass. Bernadine Rice stood at a crossing of the railroad that cut through the main streets of Emmis. Her carrying box rested on the ground between her feet. The gate was down. The warning bells were ringing. She could hear the train, out of sight around the bend, coming fast. A movement, seen out of the corner of her eye, caught Bernadine's attention. About a hundred yards from the crossing, a woman stepped onto the tracks. She wore a tailored tweed suit and plain blouse and, moving carefully but hurriedly, was making her way across the rails. As she raised her foot to clear the third rail, the sharp, high heel of her shoe unexpectedly sank into the cinders of the track bed. She was off balance and began to fall. She screamed, tried desperately to miss the third rail, but her hand, involuntarily thrust out to break her fall, went full against electrically charged metal. Instantly, her light brown hair shot up, each fine strand rigidly on end, forming a haze-like filigree around around her terror-stricken face. Her body, vibrating violently from the passage of current through it, was thrown forward, away from the rail and clear of the track. At the same instant, the train cleared the bend and sped through the crossing, obscuring in a roar of sound and dust the body of the prostrate woman. The people gathered at the crossing reacted in horror. Even above the clatter of the train, screams could be heard and cries of, Help! and Get the Cops! When the train had passed, Bertadine grabbed her box and began running along the railroad ties to the place where the woman lay. Several people followed, three young men dressed in business suits, a teenage boy in jeans and flannel shirt, and an older man, wearing a loose raincoat over a dark suit and carrying a small leather bag. When they reached the woman, the older man knelt beside her motionless form. He seized her wrist, which hung limply between his fingers, and tried to find a pulse. At the same time, he doubled over, placing his ear against her chest. A tense frown of concentration distorted his figures, Suddenly he half stood, swung himself over, straddled the prostrate woman's midsection, and knelt, his head facing hers. Pinch her nostrils closed, he barked to the teenager who was standing, open-mouthed, near the woman's head. He lowered himself and placed his lips over hers, exhaling hard into her mouth. He inhaled, and as he did so, shoved hard and sharply against her chest with the heels of both hands, just below her breastbone. He continued his practice, rhythmically exhaling into her mouth, then striking her chest hard near her heart as he drew in air. Sweat beaded on his forehead. He struggled to shed his coat without breaking his rhythm. An odor of burnt flesh hung in the air, rising from her charred, blistered palm. Her face grew pink-purple. Reddish blotches formed in her cheeks. The color deepened ominously, till it was like raw liver. Still the man labored, his sweat running onto her rubbery skin. Finally, breathless, he stopped and looked up. Nothing, he said. He leaned forward, lifted her eyelids, and stared into her eyes. They were rigid, the dilated pupils fixed on some point in space. She's dead, he whispered, with sadness and fatigue. Bernadine began to move. Her hands, fumbling clumsily, struggled to open her box. She reached in and withdrew the bottle of Freddy's used bathwater. Quickly she unscrewed the cap and flung the contents full into the woman's darkening face. Within a second, the woman moved. Her chest jerkily heaved upwards. A gargling sound strained from her throat and she sucked in a great breath. Twice more she forced air into her lungs this way. Then a clot of thick shine began to lighten. The man, still crouched beside the woman, whirled and looked up at Bernadine. His eyes were wide and his jaws slack. She was dead. I know, I'm a doctor. Bernadine started to run but a wall of people blocked her way. The doctor had turned again to the woman and was lifting her eyelids. The pupils, reacting to strong sunlight, contracted sharply, the lids strained against his fingers, trying to shut out the threatening sun. The boy who'd pinched the woman's nostrils was staring at Bernadine, his face a mixture of awe and fear. The sound of the siren came faintly from a distance, and the doctor asked of no one in particular, ''Is this for her? Has someone called an ambulance?'' Several heads in the crowd nodded vigorously. The doctor picked up his coat and spread it over the stricken woman, her face by now a deep, even pink. He spoke to Bernadine in a low voice. Except that I don't believe in such things, I'd say that was more than just a lucky break. What was that stuff you threw at her? The shock of it probably started her up again. Water, Bernadine answered lamely. Christ, she's lucky. Here she is without a sign of life, and you just happen to have the thing that saves her. What made you think to do it? Bernadine said nothing, but a voice from the edge of the crowd was suddenly raised. This ain't the first time. This woman's the second person I seen her save. Bernadine knew the voice. There, in the second row of gaping bystanders, was a short squat man she'd seen at the store. His tweed cap was pushed back exposing a damp, pasty rim of bare scalp. His broad hand was raised, a blunt finger pointing at Bernadine. ''Maybe you don't call it no miracle, mister, but it's the second time I've seen her do it. Nothing like that can happen twice, by accident. She's got a power, and it's got to come from God.'' People in the crowd near the short man turned to look at him, but those more distant could not see who was speaking and raised up on their toes, straining to peer over the heads in front. Eager, confused queries skipped from place to place in the crowd like a flat stone skimming over water. What did he say? A miracle? What happened? Is she dead? A wave of pushing began at the rear of the crowd, swaying the restless group like a field of supple grass bowing to the wind. The doctor grabbed Bernadine's box. Will it hold my weight? Bernadine shrugged. I think so. It's strong. He climbed on top, raised his arms over his head and cried out, Wait! Wait! The mob slowly quieted. The wail of the siren grew nearer and sharper. The doctor's voice was nearly lost. No miracle happened here. This woman touched the third rail. She didn't die. Her heart and breathing stopped for a few seconds. Then they started again. That's all. A murmur riffed through the crowd. Here and there muted, but distinct voices could be picked out who's he? Who's the woman? Did he say she's dead? The doctor tried again. Please listen. She's not dead. She never died. She just stopped breathing for a few minutes. The siren was near now. The ambulance's motor could be heard under its howl. The short squat man stepped away from the crowd and turned back to face it. Hey, he cried out in an incredibly loud voice. Everyone fell instantly silent. He glared briefly at the doctor, malevolence radiating from his eyes. This woman was crossing these tracks. She fell and hit the third rail. His voice was a roar, easily overriding the penetrating shriek of the approaching ambulance. She died. I seen it. I seen this doctor try to start her heart. I seen him blow in her mouth. I seen her face get black. I seen the doctor give up. He stopped, drawing a huge breath and shooting the doctor a quick, angry look. At the same instant, the ambulance arrived at the edge of the crowd and switched off its siren. I heard this doctor say she was dead. This he shouted slowly and emphatically into the sudden, hollow silence. This girl, Bernadine Rice, threw something in that woman's face. I seen that, too. That's what started her breathing again. She came back to life. People at the, front edge, at the front edge of the crowd, who'd been near enough to see, began to call out. Me, too. I saw it. She was dead. Heard the doctor say it. At the rear of the crowd, the ambulance attendants began cutting their way through the people. But the short man continued. I'd seen it before. Bernadine Rice cured leukemia. She can make miracles. I know. I seen it. The doctor, still on the box, frantically waved his arms and shouted, Wait, wait a minute. Let me explain. But the people in the crowd weren't listening. They turned to each other, staring in silent awe. It was a moment to remember. Though most were strangers, fate had forged the bond that would join them forever. Bernadine, afraid of the crowd, climbed into the rear of the ambulance with the doctor. The woman, wrapped like a mummy in a blanket, lay on a stretcher, breathing normally. She was peacefully unconscious. They went a few blocks in silence, save for the siren, which was surprisingly muted by the body of the vehicle. The doctor finally spoke. Looks like you've got your hands full. It's tough enough being able to cure diseases the ordinary way. I'd hate to be known as a a miracle worker. He stopped for a moment. What did that guy mean you cured leukemia? Bernadine explained, not mentioning a new man by name, but referring to him only as a powerful friend. The doctor shook his head and skeptically raised an eyebrow. Maybe, he said, but leukemia is like that. It vanishes sometimes for months without a trace. The ambulance was stopping. They were near a dingy gray concrete platform at the rear of the hospital. The attendant had jumped out and was already opening the door. The doctor and Bernadine jumped out. He shook her hand and said, goodbye, and good luck.
5: I hope you'll join us for some wine or seltzer at the front.